Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. So welcome to another episode of Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Today, uh, we are continuing our general club series uh, with Annals of Surgery, and in discussion today, we have with us Dr. Kafarani. Dr. Kafarani did his medical college in American University of Barrett, followed by his residency at Tufts and University of South Florida, and fellowship in trauma critical care at the MGH. Dr. Kafarani is an associate professor of surgery, director of clinical research, as well as director of patient safety and quality at the Mass General Hospital. Today, we will be discussing his most recent research work uh, on the novel risk calculator in surgery. Thank you so much for joining us today um, at Behind the Knife, Dr. Kafarani, and welcome. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. So this is Karen again, and uh, like uh, um, Dr. Kafarani is here to discuss with us his new paper uh, presented at the American Surgical Association's conference in 2018 titled, Surgical Risk is Not Linear, Derivation and Validation of a Novel, User-Friendly, and Machine Learning-Based Predictive Optimal Trees and Emergency Surgery Risk Calculator, also known as Potter. So to introduce this uh, work, basically the context is that the tools that we use to predict risk in surgery vary widely in the way they work and how well they predict outcomes. Some, like the ASA score, are fairly subjective. subjective. Others, like the American College of Surgeons Risk Calculator, require lots of quantitative inputs in order to generate their predictions. Many of these were also designed around elective rather than emergency surgery. The quantitative calculators also use a linear approach that assumes that every variable is equally important in every patient, which may not actually be the case. So their team used a machine learning algorithm with emergency cases in the NISQIP database to come up with optimal classification trees to predict surgical outcomes. Unlike the usual risk calculators that many of us have seen, it was designed to ask the most predictive questions first based on the clinical scenario and the outcome of interest and ask the next next questions based on the answers to the prior questions. The model was derived from patients in NISQIP from 2007 to 2013 and then later tested on the data set from 2014. And then in their paper, its performance was compared against the ASA, the ACS risk calculator, and the ESS, or emergency surgery score. They had separate algorithms for 30-day mortality, morbidity, and any of 18 specific postoperative complications. Their findings were that the C statistic for their algorithm, known as Potter, was 0.92, which was superior to the C statistic for the ASA score, which was 0.87, ESS was 0.89, and the ACS surgical risk calculator was about 0.9. It also outperformed the other calculators on 30-day morbidity. And of note, according to the manuscript, um, the performance of the model was not significantly better when the patient's underlying diagnosis and operation were included. So their final model left out the patient's ICD and CPT codes. And it only required 4 to 11 questions to predict mortality for a given patient. They also developed an app for clinicians to use uh, at the point of care. Implications of this study are, are fascinating. It seems like a machine learning algorithm can come up with an interactive, nonlinear risk prediction model to facilitate decisions in emergency surgery. They also uh, suggest that the app could be integrated into an EMR to pull in patient parameters automatically without user prompting. Jacofrani, does that sound uh, accurate to you? Do you have any corrections or clarifications? No, that, that sounds perfect, and, and uh, I am as excited as you guys sound uh, to be about it. I, I, think, uh, I think that will be that will prove to be very useful at the bedside of patients. So, excellent summary. Thank you. Excellent. 
So, uh, Dr. Kakrani, uh, to start you off, what was the what was the impetus uh, in performing this study? That, that's a really good question, and actually, thank you for sending me a little bit of the prompts out of time, which made me think a little bit more about it. You know, many, many times during uh, during surgery, uh, when we go see patients in the emergency room, we are faced by the concept of uncertainty of what do we tell the patients. So we have our gestalt. We look at these patients, they don't look good. We don't think they're going to do well in surgery. But when we go to talk to them and to their loved ones about our expectations, Oftentimes we feel like we're trying to predict the future and we are ourselves uncertain about that future. So I, I think that the desire to be more confident when we advise families for surgery or against surgery comes at the essence of this work and trying to equip us with a more objective data or objective data to, um, to advise our patients and their family whether to proceed with surgery or not and if they do proceed, to set the expectations right for how they will do after surgery. Yeah, I think that's really important. So one thing is uh, we were reading the paper and discussing um, understanding how the decision tree works um, was a little bit confusing to those of us who, who don't know the, the methods completely. So can you give us a basic explanation of the algorithm? Specifically what we were trying to understand is um, in the figure it depicts that you know, if a patient, if you answer that a patient received a transfusion, the next question is, um, what is the BUN? Whereas if they did not, the next question is about their white count. So does this eliminate the white count as a contributing factor for the transfuse subset and vice versa? Yeah, that's a very interesting question. I, I had to myself dig, in, dig into the mathematician within myself to, to get grasp of it because my initial reflex is similar to yours, you know, how could these factors that we know are important in predicting how patients, so how could they be not important in the algorithms? And I think the best way of thinking about it is by giving an analogy. For example, if I, if I walk into somebody just sitting on their deck, they're enjoying a drink, and I go take their drink and I throw it at them, they will become very wet. They will be really overwhelmed with how much water they got on themselves. But if you take the same scenario, but for somebody swimming in a side of swimming pool, and I take a cup of water and I throw it at them, it might not affect them as much. And I think that concept is extremely important. Meaning, if you have a patient who is undergoing surgery and is healthy as can be, the presence of hypertension might make the biggest difference in their risk of surgery. However, if they are diabetic and cirrhotic, the presence of hypertension might not be as important in adding risk to them because they already have a high risk to start with. And that's why we, we you know, uh, put the title as surgical risk is not linear. It's to delineate the fact that the presence or absence of certain risk factors in patients is extremely important in terms of affecting the impact of other risk factors. It's not linear. Not every not every risk factor affects every patient the same. I hope that makes sense to you. Yeah, that does make it does clarify that a little bit more. Another uh, question or another interesting finding for us was that the model did not incorporate the operation that the patient was receiving. And so, for these patients, you know, whether they need an appendectomy or an exploratory laparotomy or a debridement for neck fascia, it's amazing to think that 
you don't need to know that in order to predict their surgical risk. Um, do you believe that to be true? Yeah, Karan, that drove me crazy in the initial phases of the research with my MIT colleagues. I, I said, you know, that something isn't right. How could the surgery itself not be important? I, I actually think it does make a lot of sense. Um, I think the, the type of questions and the algorithm trees are affected by the type of surgery. It appears in other factors. For example, if for the patient who is having a simple appendectomy, they, they usually, the healthier patients, they don't have as much risk factors, so you don't see these risk factors appear in their algorithms of questions. Versus the patients who's undergoing um, an emergency laparotomy for a perforated viscous, they are sick at baseline. So the other variables, their sodium, their white count, they're needing transfusions, they're needing intubation, all appear in the algorithm early, early and, and that's how the type of surgery is accounted for in the algorithm to the other variables. It manifests itself through other variables. It's fascinating. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think uh, it, it's a little bit scary, to be honest with you, because it, it shows how simplistic our, think, our thinking as humans are, and to a certain extent, how the machines are able to... Um, to to account for risk in a much more sophisticated sophisticated way than than ever, than we can ever do with our minds. So yes, it's scary and it's but in but I'm like a little bit of science fiction to be honest. Yeah. It's a little bit hard to picture this on audio. So for our listeners, uh, I'm actually going to sort of talk out loud um, using the risk calculator. I have it on my iPhone and I recommend it for anybody. So I'm just picturing somebody who came in with a uh, perforated uh, peptic ulcer, and I uh, wanted to predict their 30-day risk, risk of mortality. First question to me was, um, was a patient currently on mechanical ventilation? I said no. Then it asked me their age, and I said they were 65. I said, then it asked me their BUM, and then I said it was 30. And then it asked me their INR, and I said it was 1.3. And then it asked if they had ascites, and I said no. And then they asked what their creatinine was, and I said it was 1.4. They asked if they had disseminated cancer, I said no. Then it asked what type of surgery will be formed. And I said general surgery. It's kind of vague, but I guess it's enough. I asked, it asked me the albumin, which was three. And then it asked about sepsis. And I said they met SERS criteria. And it gave me a 5.7% uh, risk of mortality, which was observed in 172 patients. So it, it's fascinating. It definitely um, sort of uh, it changes the paradigm from what we usually think of as the most important questions when you're looking at a patient as to whether or not they're going to die you know, around surgery. It's, it's, it's a fascinating um, and, and Karan, if, if I may add, uh, I, I do encourage everybody to look through their iPhone Play Store or through their Android Play Store to download the app. But what's what's fascinating, you take the same algorithm and as the age, for example, you plug a different type of age or let's say you, you say that they are intubated, they are on mechanical ventilation. You can see, try that, do me a favor and try that, put there, they are on mechanical ventilation. Okay, then it asked me the age, and I said 65 again. Yeah. It asked me the INR, I said 1.3. Yeah. Um, now it's asking me the uh, one of the transaminases. I'm going to give it, I don't know, 150. Now it's asking me the platelets. <laughs> Let's say 250. And the final risk estimation is 25%. So all the other physiology was normal. Um, the INR was slightly elevated, the LFTs were slightly elevated, but I guess the mechanical ventilation uh, increased their mortality fivefold. Yeah, well, it, it, it actually, believe it or not, it took it in a completely different algorithm. And, and the type of risk factors for the patients who needed intubation for whatever disease process that's coming on, 
took it in a completely different algorithm. Uh, and the risk factor, you can see you have four, four questions and that, that was it. That was all the algorithm needed to plug in what is the risk of mortality of these patients. And if you keep playing with it, it's like the gift that keeps on giving. It gives you different risks, completely different algorithms as you change any of your answers to any of the questions. Uh, so that, that's what's fascinating about it in my mind. That is very, very interesting. Um, in the paper, Dr. Caffroni, you mentioned the C statistic, and um, so in a general understanding, it's the same thing as the area under the ROC curve, and ranges anywhere between 0.5, which is random chance, to 1, which is the perfect prediction. Um, could you shed some more light as to like uh, what the differences in the C statistics uh, mean, and uh, were you able to calculate like confidence intervals or anything like that from uh, this kind of calculation? Yeah, let, let me start with your second question, too. A very good question, too. The confidence intervals, they're very hard to um, to come up with confidence intervals um, with that kind of work because, uh, you know I, know, I know our listeners cannot see the algorithms, but if, if, if I can, if, if they look at the paper, they see a glimpse of the algorithm. They're very complicated trees. They look like the decision trees for anybody who who has taken cost-effectiveness and Markov modeling. They look similar to that. So you cannot derive confidence interval from the optimal classification trees methodology. The, op the confidence intervals are mostly like logistic regression and propensity scoring. Um, so you, you can't do that, unfortunately. Uh, and, and that's partly because the, the same risk factor that's present for one patient is not necessarily present for the second patient, is not present for the third patient, so you cannot derive one number related to one risk factor. In terms of the area under the curve, I mean, the, the way I understand it, and I'm not a, a mathematician, I, I do have a master's of, of public health with some statistical knowledge, but the best way to think about it is how much the algorithms account for the variability of the eventual outcome. For example, when we say the C-statistics or the area under the curve for mortality is 0.92, that means the model with its current algorithms account for about 92% of the variability in mortality. And there's 8% that it does not account for, which is most likely related to variables that are just not part of the model. So are you um, and your residents, your uh, faculty using Potter clinically currently? And if so, has it affected your decision-making conversations, conversations with patients, etc.? Yeah, we, 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 we definitely are. We have in, uh, at MGH and our acute care is to 8 a.m. And it's a, it's a busy hospital. Uh, it's a city and with plenty of admissions, plenty of surgeries every night. So in the morning, uh, you know, it started by me showing as part of teaching how they can predict what's the risk of mortality and morbidity for the specific patient that they just presented. And now it just, um, you know, it started as a pretty much request from our residents present in the ED that every time a patient is going from the ED to the OR, they plug in their node what the product calculators predicted risk and, of mortality and morbidity. Uh, and that patient, that's part of the counseling that happens in the emergency room. So instead of us going to the patient and saying, hey, we think you have a 10% chance of mortality, and that's out of our crystal ball that we use, um, what we do, we plug their numbers into the product calculator quickly, and within five seconds we get a number, and we go and we tell them, you know, the evidence-based algorithms we have 
suggests that your risk of mortality is about 20.5% and the risk of having a complication is about 60%. And that's why we think if you survive, you still have kind of complications, will be a wide road and helps us the expectations. Uh, has it affected how, you know, if we offer surgery to somebody or we have no, we decline to offer? We have not used it as something that uh, by itself, with a cutoff, we use to offer surgery or don't. It, a lot of times it confirms our already uh, present gestalt on patients not going to be doing well. Um, but I did have one of my partners tell me that she was hesitating about operating on a very old lady, above 90. And the product calculator suggested that her mortality risk is less than 5%. So she did offer her surgery and she did well and she left the hospital. I don't know if that's, that's just pure anecdotal evidence, but... Uh, in that sense, it did change our practice a little bit. Did, in that specific case, um, were any of the other risk calculators used as a comparison to see? Uh, yes, we did. Uh, you know, I hate to say it, but in, in, uh, in working with MIT and creating our product calculator, I almost shot another baby of mine, which is the ESS, the Emergency Surgery Score. Uh, so I typically try to use both and, uh, and we are conducting a multi-institutional study through the Eastern Association for Surgical Trauma to prospectively validate ESS. So what I'm doing for every patient that is enrolled in our study at MGH, I calculate their mortality and morbidity according to ESS and then plug them into the body calculator and I keep track of that. And at some point, there's going to be a research paper. Very cool. Um, my next question for you, Dr. Kafrani, is um, kind of um, based more on the technical stuff of the calculator itself. Um, like, what exactly are, how are we going to upkeep, what's the upkeeping of the calculator? How are we going to make sure that this, the way the algorithms are laid down, that it's going to, you know, constantly be up to date with the data? How are we going to make sure that the calculator is going to be um working at the best um with the best evidence that we have available yeah that's that's a really really good question too and we're, we're struggling with it a little bit um and the reason we're struggling is because we are simply not using the power of machine learning to its maximum um we are falling short of uh, right now with the, with the current apps that we have in terms we could not create the feedback loop. And what do I mean by a feedback loop? What I mean by a feedback loop is that this machine learning is able to learn from its mistakes all the time. That's actually part of its of its powers and its strengths. However, for, for it to learn from its mistakes, it needs to, to know that it did a mistake. Let's say the algorithm predicted that somebody has a 90% chance of dying and that patient survived, and the next 100 patients with the same situation died, the calculator right now, as, as it is the current app in its current form, will not know that that patient that it predicted its um, mortality did not die, so it cannot correct. So what the, optimally what we can do is everybody who uses the calculator, there's a way of them going back into the calculator and saying, aha, your patient, you predicted correctly or you did not predict correctly. And then the algorithm goes from 92% accurate to 99% accurate over a few years. Um, 
it's technically difficult to ask everybody to go back and tell us what happened to their patients, but the, our thinking so far, the, the alternative to it, is integration into electronic health records. So that um, we, the calculator is automatically activates for every patient who is undergoing emergency surgery, and the medical record will follow the patient, will know if the patient had a complication or died, that feeds into the algorithm, and this way the algorithm just keeps adapting and learning from itself. So along those same lines, since uh, this data was pulled from NISPLIP, um, have you looked into a way to, um, rather than, right now NISPLIP is primarily just used for retrospe retrospective data collection, a way to um, integrate that as well into this live feed back into the, the calculation? So, um yeah, we're, uh, we're we're doing that right now. So, I, like I, as I just said, we uh, we are doing a prospective um, multi multi institutional study on emergency surgery score. It's an East Eastern Association for Surgical Trauma sponsored study. And on the side, I, it's very easy. We have all the data. I'm plugging the product calculator, and when we have a, a number of patients, will it's going to be the prospective validation of how Potter is performing. And um, are there plans to integrate this into the Mass General EMR currently? Yeah, well, we're, we're doing a lot of discussions now. Um, it's, uh, it's not easy to, uh, to ask for yet another thing to be integrated at, a, at the system level, not only at MGH, but at a partner's level, so MGH, Brigham and & Women, and, and many of the other affiliate hospitals. But yes, we are doing a high-level discussions to see if we integrate it as a decision, decision aid. And what I'm trying to do is not only integrate it as a tool that assists surgeons and physicians, but also with the feedback loop that I wanted so we can continue improving the algorithm. And the discussions, the, the more interesting is the discussions we're doing them not only for emergency surgery, because the methodology is replicable for elective surgeries as well. So we're trying to use the same methodology to try to predict risk for high-risk surgeries like pancreatic surgery, colorectal surgery, and put it as an integrated algorithm within the medical record to predict risk for all surgical patients, not only emergency ones. Fascinating. And as a, as a Brigham resident, I can certainly uh, sympathize with the difficulty of uh, making changes to the EMR partners. Uh, speaking of Boston... It seems like a, an amazing amount of uh, interdisciplinary collaboration went into this project. I know you worked with uh, scientists at MIT to get this done. And, and so I was wondering, how did you begin working with them? And do you have any future projects in store? Yeah, so, um, yeah, I, I mean, a shout out to my, my three of my collaborators on this project. Uh, Dr. George Valmahos, who's the chief of uh, trauma at Mass General and a, and a good friend, is also one of the key members of this research group. And from the MIT side, there's uh, Dimitri Bertsimas, who's a professor um, at MIT, as well as Jack Dunn, who's just finished his, graduated his PhD at MIT. And the four of us are pretty much the core group. There's a lot of people who helped on the side, but um, this is the group. How the collaboration started? Um, it started on a, on a little bit of a dinner table where um, actually George Valmos and Dimitri Bertsimas know each other at a personal level. And we met and we were chatting just generalities and stuff. And we, we talked about how the concept of uncertainty in medicine and how we don't understand more than 15% of the variables that affect patient care. Very philosophical discussion. 
And uh, like a mighty mathematician, the first thing that comes out of Dimitri's mouth was like, if you give me the numbers, I can predict anything for 99% accuracy. And we both laughed. He said, that's not possible. But that's how the idea started. He said, we have more advanced algorithms that we just had the patent for. And uh, if you guys are willing to embark with us on um, really gruesome, if you want, um, data analysis and you help us with the medical aspect of things, what's relevant, what's not relevant, we will be the mathematical power behind it. And it was a beautiful collaboration because each one had its place in the team. We all felt very valuable without, if you took one person from the team, it will fall apart. Um, and that's that's how it led to. I mean, they were the mathematical power and we were the, the medical reasoning behind it. And how long did the project take? I would say about a year and a half. Excellent, excellent. Well, that certainly... You know, for those of us, uh, you know, doing surgical research, it certainly attests to the power of uh, working with people outside surgery and, you know, even outside uh, medicine to come up with new ways of doing research. Well, uh, thank you, Dr. Kafarani, for a fascinating podcast and just a great, great uh, eye-opening view into your research. We uh, enjoy chatting with you. The pleasure was all mine. Thank you, guys, and you have a good night. Until next time, dominate the day.